with that in mind, would you uh, please turn to Acts 13? And if you don't mind standing, let's read this text together. And of course, you know this is the uh, beginning of the first missionary journey. This is um, when Jesus said, you will become my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will take this good news of mine and your witness to my resurrected self uh, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 13 really launches the uttermost parts of the earth. That's where we are in the journey of the structure of Acts. And so this is what the text says. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, interestingly enough, and Saul, who is our Paul. He, he's called Paul for the first time in this text. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them uh, away onto their first journey. So verse 4 launches the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. In fact, if you want to put, no, you can't really. We'll put the map up in just a moment. You'll see um, what this looks like. They went down to Seleucia from Syrian Antioch. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, which is a city on the coast of Cyprus, on the, um, the eastern coast. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews where the Jewish community gathered. They also had John, this is John Mark, who we think wrote the gospel of Mark um, as their assistant or as their disciple, I think, uh, somebody that uh, came along with them to learn, learn the ministry. Now, when they'd gone through the island to Paphos, so they crossed across Cyprus to the other side, so to a western city, western coastal city, Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, or son of Joshua, son of Yeshua, is, is really the, the Hebrew rendering. Um, this is just translated, Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who is documented in history, by the way, as uh, in Roman history, as if it's the same one. I guess there could have been two, but most scholars think it's the same one that's documented during the reign of um, Tiberius, I believe. An intelligent man, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God from them. But Elymas, the sorcerer, uh, the word Elymas probably means sorcerer. That's what he's saying. Uh, This guy named uh, son of Joshua was... A sorcerer, or Elymas, those two are equal, for so his name is translated, withstood them or stood against them. This is the same Greek word that's used in James 4, 7 when it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the same word. It's, it's a word that's used often in the New Testament of spiritual warfare when literally the powers of darkness and the power of Christ who is light come to, together and there's a, there's a battle. This word is often used withstood them, stood against them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, first time right here, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. My, 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 I would have uh, given a lot to see what that look looked like and said, by the way, don't try this at work. Um, Oh, 
full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Don't do this to your boss or whatever. Just, I don't care what you think they're about that day. Just, just use some other language. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed in Christ. And he saw, when he saw what had been done, uh, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You may be seated. So let me, first of all, simply say by way of introduction that Antioch was a very dark, jacked-up city in the ancient uh, Roman world. It was uh, the third largest city in the empire, and you can put the map up now if you'd like to, um, Megan. Um, you'll see it. It's, it's called Syrian Antioch. You'll, over in Asia Minor, there's Pisidian Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch. And you'll see Jerusalem. Can you show them Jerusalem? Keep going. There it is. And so Jerusalem, when it says they're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, they've been moving throughout Judea up into Samaria, and now they are at, in Antioch, and that's going to be the launching place to the uttermost parts of the earth, okay? And so um, this city, third largest in the empire, had a large Jewish community for many historical reasons that I don't want to get into, but it was also very cosmopolitan, as several other of the larger cities in the Roman Empire were. It was a very tense city. It was a very segregated city. It has been said that they literally, it was so segregated, there were walled-off ghetto areas where certain communities of, of ethnic folk would live. Certain folk would live here, certain folk would live here, certain folk would live here. It was also known as a filthy city. It had a high infant mortality rate. 50% of the babies that were born in Antioch died. It was known for its rich and varied culture, at least Cicero said that, but it was also known as a vile, corrupt city. Uh, one commentary said it was filled with gross immorality and ritual prostitution as a part of its temple worship, specifically um, of the god Apollo. And then, just to show you that this is uh, a true from Roman history, the Roman satirist Juvenal said, and I quote, the sewage of the Syrian Orontes, which was the, the river alongside the, that was associated with uh, Syrian Antioch, the sewage of the Syrian river Orontes has for long been discharged into the Tiber, which was the river flowing through Rome. So it was a metaphorical way of saying um, Antioch polluted the Roman Empire with its mess, with its degradation, with its not only physical filth, but its, its moral filth. And it's, it, it, it was so polluted in, in its character that pollution extended all the way to Rome. And yet, God chooses this city to launch his first venture to the ends of the earth. I am, I am so struck today that especially in this era, we are so strategic about where we want to plant a church and where we want to, you know, and we're looking at all the factors and we get all the demographics and, and, and sometimes those are for the good, reason, good reasons, but other times I think it's maybe because we want to be in a place where we think the thing's going to work. We want to be in a position where we think that what we're going to do is going to, 
with the gospel is going to land in a place where people are going to come, then they're going to give, and the thing won't just flame out. And I just got to tell you, um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be thoughtful, but I'm saying God doesn't think like that. He is not intimidated by the circumstance that we find ourselves in, um, whether we're church planters or just individual followers of Christ. He is not intimidated. In fact, I think if you look at history, even the history of Acts, he loves to set up operations a block away from the gates of hell. And that's exactly what's happening here. In fact, it's interesting. If you look at the, the prophets and teachers that are listed here um, uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3, you've got folks from all over the place. Two of these prophets came from Africa for sure. And then you have Saul. Are you kidding me? The guy that was killed Christian. So he's one of the main men here. And then you've got this guy named Manaean who was brought up with Herod Antipas. You know what Herod Antipas was uh, famous for? murdering John the Baptist, calling for his head to come to him on a platter. And so you have two people that grew up together. One of them became known for murdering the forerunner, the Elijah that was a forerunner of the Messiah, and the other one somehow, by the grace of God, raised in the very same household. You might have said, well, poor Herod Antipas. You know, he just, look, God is not intimidated by circumstance. He is reaching in everywhere where there's mess, which is everywhere, and no matter how much mess the mess is, he is calling people from everywhere, from all walks of life, from all levels of seeming distance from the ability to even believe, right up in Herod's household. He's calling folk, uh, not just to barely get saved, not just to barely trust in Christ, but to be called to an august group like this. It's going to be the launching group for literally the salvation of the world. God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. Amen. Amen, Cindy. Amen. Now, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what this launch looked like because one of the things we've been talking about, one of the reasons we decided to go through Acts in this transition period in our journey is because we're saying we're the Acts church. So there should be some ability to mirror at hope what's going on in this Acts community. So let's just talk about what this church launch looks like. First of all, you've got Saul, you've got Barnabas, and you have John Mark that go out together. What I take from this is, and you'll see this all the way through Luke uh, and now all the way into Acts and into the rest of Acts, almost never were disciples sent out alone into spiritual battle. And in America, we are so individualistic. But I'm saying... It is not good to be alone in spiritual battle. It doesn't mean that if part of your spiritual battle is at work, you can't always, you know, tell one of your brothers or sisters of Christ at your job to quit their job so they can get a job where you work so that you have somebody there with you. I get that. So sometimes it might seem impractical, but even if you're there alone, you've got to some, we got to somehow make sure that we're partnering at noon or we're partnering after work or we ask God to show us who the followers of Christ are in that context, whether it's family or neighborhood or job or a mission trip. We, it's not good. You know the National Geographic film, the lion will not pounce on a herd of African antelope, but it will pounce on a straggler. I don't think this is by accident here that they're partner up. And I, I actually was thinking about this this week as I was at this camp, and you never know how these gigs are going to go. You just go and you try to be Christ. You just try to 
You just try to um, follow Christ and love folk. But um, I got there, and as it turned out, um, let's just say they had me talking five different times, which is a lot, I think. And then in between, we had young students, the student staff, sign up. And so it turned out that um, I literally sat with, this is going to sound a some of you will think it sounds stupid. I'm just telling you this what happened. I don't know if it was stupid or not. All I know, there was a lot of need. I sat with 40 individual students, 25% of the 160. The sessions were about an hour long. And I would get back at night when I'd walk out at the end of the evening. And, you know, everybody else had gone to bed because they had their own jobs. They had to get up early in the morning and get the camp ready. So I ain't, I'm not mad at anybody. Um, but I would literally, first night I walked out and they, they like this camp to be dark. They really like it to be darker than most camps I've ever been at. And so I walked out, and it was so dark, I literally didn't know where I was going. So I'd just been with all these students. I'd felt the darkness of the enemy trying to, you know, literally steal their life. And then I'm walking out into the darkness, and where they had me staying, it was a, it was a decent room, and I was really thankful, but it was like a mile away in the dark. First night, thank God, one of the guys came out of the bushes. I don't know what he was doing, and I was kind of like this, but he had one of those golf carts, so he took me to my place, and I was just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then I would get back, and it'd be about midnight, and I have to get up the next morning, and somebody was, would be meeting me for breakfast, so we'd, we'd be sitting there, and they'd be sharing, and I mean by 15 minutes in, they're, they're sobbing at the table. That's how much wound was in this group. That's how much wound is in the world, Period wasn't a special wounded group. They're just kids, gifted kids, just the cream of the crop. All these university students from all over Texas, but they were so wounded. But I'd sit there at midnight, and sometimes I thought, I need somebody here. I need somebody here. I, need, I should not be alone right now. There needs to be some partnership. Just I, even if it was someone just to say, how you doing? Can we pray together? Are you catching my drift? And I don't really know how to fix that because I don't have the kind of money to pay someone to go with me to go to those kinds of things. Plus, I would want you to be there so we could do this together, but then I might want at some point to say, leave me alone because I need to be alone right now. And so I don't want to do that either. You know what I'm saying? So it can be awkward. I'm just saying I felt this this week. Look, if we're going to have the strength to do what this is, and Acts 13 is what we are. If we're anything, this is us, that we can't do it alone. You're not sitting here today just like, well, hi, good to see you. I'm so glad I'm, I'll be seeing you next week. No, th these are your partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, if you're Saul, your Barnabas is close by. Your John Mark is close by. And if not, I'm telling you, like me, this week, you are at risk. That's the first thing that pops out at me. And then secondly... I'm impressed, as of course we are all the way through Luke and Acts, at the multiple mentions of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit said. Now, how did he say it? I don't know. I wasn't there. Was it a sign in the sky? Was it an audible voice? Was it imp an impression in the, the leaders? I don't know. But somehow Luke says he got his message across. And then in verse 4, you can see it, he the Holy Spirit sent them out. And in verse 9, the Holy Spirit filled Paul so that he could do spiritual battle in behalf of the proconsul. 
Now, I want to, rem I want to remind you, they had no Bible. Pretty quiet in here right now. You know, because I'm, like, when I go someplace, if, I, if I'd have gotten on the plane last week and didn't have this, I would have been, I mean, not only is this a Bible I've had for 20 years, it's got personal notes, it's got prayers, it's got, this is as close to me as any, it's as close as any non-human thing is to me. They didn't have that. They also had no other resources. This week I had a PowerPoint they ain't got no PowerPoint in the first century. They didn't have no cool worship instruments. I suppose in the body of Christ they had some ancient instruments. I, I, I know they did, but not like we have now. It, it's just worship. You know, you can go online, and Ram is telling me about Bethel worship today, and you can go online and just be, they had none of that. So what did they have? They had the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not sure how it all worked, but I know that the church, these three brothers listened, they obeyed, they surrendered, and I think what occurred to me today was, how about us? What do we depend, how about saying it this way, if we're not, look, look you know me, I'm you. you, you're me, I'm you, so this isn't a criticism, it's a question. If you don't find yourself out there very much being launched, whether it's at work or whatever, are you just kind of going to work and, whew, thank God, made it through another day without too much persecution or whatever? Or do you feel like you are launched, that you're there at work for more reasons than just to do a good job, which is a part of your witness, but also to see people who, like the proconsul, are being attacked by the enemy and need Christ and if you find that you're not, could it be because you're just not sure if you're capable? I get that. But what if you and I could be convinced that the same Holy Spirit who spoke, who sent, who filled in the first century would speak and send and fill us? What if we could be assured of that? So I experienced a little bit of that this week. In fact, I do every time I go someplace because I've got my PowerPoints and Sue has helped me. She even taught me this last week how to do a PowerPoint. I can now do one. I think. I think, Raphael. I think I can. I've done a couple. Whether When I go back now and I'm trying to do another one, I know I'm going to be going, where was that thing she said to click on? But... Um, so I had my PowerPoint, and you probably don't know about this about me, but when I go speak someplace, I'm not a prima donna speaker, but I do say I have a few things. I need a hands-free mic that is, you know, um, yeah, hands-free. And then I need a stool. I don't like standing and getting all prophetic with folk. I like to sit and be with the folk, which is why this pulpit is here and not up there. Hopefully, your new senior pastor will be okay with that. I like to have a music stand because it's adjustable. And I like to be able to run my PowerPoint personally and not have to depend on someone else. Those are the few things that I need. So I have my uh, things that I think I need to make what I do effective. But that's all good for the sessions. When I get into a counseling session as a pastoral counselor, counselor, 
Um, and these young people, let me, I want to be careful I don't use names because these are confidential stories, but when they start sharing things like um, a relative who is a drug lord, several of the young men and women ex- have experienced incredible uh, racial hatred. We're feeling it as they came into a mostly Caucasian camp, but fairly diverse, quite frankly, but, but mostly Caucasian. So they're pouring out years, even at 18 and 20, of, of racial wound and then asking me, how can I help my, my brothers and sisters not of color to understand that? So they're just, they're sobbing. And then sexual abuse and then the lack of parenting. And a couple of the young people had been trafficked for 15 years. One, her mother had sold her. She was just coming out of that as a counselor. One young woman, I'm going to tell you her story later, had just had escaped a few years back from an Islam. No, she was kicked out of her Islamic household, had to live on a street for him. And so they're sharing, do you think that I have any resources in that moment except while I'm sitting there like this? And I always try to think, how would Jesus be with this person? How has Jesus been with me? looking at me in the eye, son, I've got you. you. You just tell me, son, all about it. Like, he never looks around my shoulder. He never is like, I'm a little busy right now. Can you shorten it? I try to give them what he has given me, so I'm right in the eye. But here, you better know that this is what I'm praying. Forty times, at least, this last week, I was like, Holy Spirit of God, what am I to say? What am I not to say? What are you asking me to be about? What Be present or I've got nothing for the depth of pain that's sitting in front of me. Are you catching what I'm saying? What if I'm almost wishing, I don't wish this, but I kind of almost do, that all of a sudden our infrastructure would just break down. We would have no resources. The Bibles would be confiscated. And we would be forced to trust the work of the Holy Spirit or we would have nothing. But according to these folks, if we have the Holy Spirit and what he does as he speaks and sends and fills, we've got everything we need. Can I tell you, I will tell you this, the, kind of the end of the story of, and I'm not overspeaking this. This is not hyperbolic. Halfway through those sessions, I had nada. By the end Every last time. Because remember, it's not about me. My Abba has his eyes on these broken sons and daughters. I am literally just this copper tubing. Well, really, probably more plastic than copper. All he wants is to say, show me, Father, and he's there. And it wasn't like there was a, like a, a light. It's just by the end of every session... You felt like a small break. The light of the good news had broken through, and they went away from every session, all 40, with hope. I'm telling you, I had nothing. The stuff was too deep. Seminary doesn't prepare you for that. In fact, if I just said, well, I think in seminary, when we talked about uh, young men and women who had parents who were drug lords, I think chapter 3, page 24 said... It's even an individual human being. How many different situations of young men and women who have drug lord parents? Only the Holy Spirit of God can help us be in that. What if we began to believe? We don't have to be afraid. Of course, we've got nothing, but we've got him. 
wonder if that would give us courage to launch. And then, of course, you can't help but notice that the word of God is everywhere here. Verse 5, they preached the word of God. And you, said, you just said they had no Bible. Stay with me. The word of God, verse 7. Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the word of God. Um, this was not the Bible. When we see the phrase word of God, what do we always think? The Bible. It's not what it was here. It was little w. God's word. No well-crafted sermons here. Paul did not have a sermon that he prepared for Sergius Paulus. What he had was words from God about his loving, redemptive plan through the crucified, resurrected Jesus. Now get this. As it had cycled through him and changed his lives. Changed his life. So here's what I think Luke would be saying. At some point, as much friendship evangelism as we have done, as much loving as we have done, just to be present to people, and you know that's the first step. You don't go out preaching. You just go out to love. You go out to love. So people need to gain trust, and so they gain trust. And then at some point, we've got to open our mouths and speak the word that God has given us, cycled through our lives about how his crucified, resurrected son has transformed our lives, has brought us back from the dead. That's what Paul was sharing. There was historical context, yes. Jesus came. He was a son of God. He taught. He lived. He healed. Then he was crucified. Then he came back to life. Yes, there is the gospel But it was, and let me tell you how that has saved me. Not just saved me so I can go to heaven. Let me tell you how that has saved my life right now, this very day. That's what they shared. So this, when I was looking at this this week, while I was trying to do all the other stuff, this is what started to pop out to me. Do we have a story to share? And you might say, yes, I have a story about when I was seven years old. Good. What about now that you're 47? Is there still a story? Could it be, look, I'm just saying, I do think this, I do think this. If there's one thing that I feel like we're ready for as a community. We started here out on the street. Then we came back in and we realized there was a lot of wound. And so we, we went into a real deep season of healing, which was right. I think we're ready to develop more of a rhythm of out and in and out and in. Are you Not if you understand what I'm saying, out and in. We've done a good season of healing. We're never gonna be completely healed Healers. We're always going to be wounded, healing healers. So here's the question. Could it be that sometimes one of the reasons why we don't go out, when I say out, like at work, we're just, we just don't want to speak because we're just, could it be it's because we don't really have a present story to tell? I'm just asking 
Because I will promise you, I don't do this. When I go out, I don't go out because I got like this package of material, you know, get me a website so we can, I mean, I do have a website, but hadn't done much for me yet. I mean, Audrey's working hard to help it do something for me and for the kingdom. Um, but so far, the reason I go is because I know every day of my life, without the good news of Jesus Christ recycling through me, I am a dead man walking. And if you know me, Brian Kane, you know me. You know I'm telling the truth. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. Ask my wife how I act. Thank God there's enough behavioral checks in me that I don't act the way I used to act way back in the day before I experienced any healing. I don't want you to think I'm living a double life, but ask her how I act. When, ask her if she can tell when I am not hearing my father call me beloved son. She'll tell you I know exactly when he crosses over into the far country. So when I share with these young people, I'm not saying, and look at my tremendous exegesis of this passage. What I'm sharing is, what you need to know is, what drove me to this passage is that if I didn't know God's love through this text, if this hadn't come alive in me, I'm a dead man. The reason I go is because I know what it means to almost be dead, and now I'm alive again. Honestly, I know many of us have a a story as well. I'm wondering, I don't know, I'm not judging. Don't go away and say, man, he beat us up. I'm not beating anybody up, I'm just sharing. I'm wondering if one of the reasons we're not, I feel like we're not out as much, we're not seeing as many people trust Christ as I think might be um, the right place for us to be. I think we should, I think we, I think we need, I think God wants to reach more people through us. I'm wondering if sometimes we are living off the fumes of a story that was like five years ago. And we're still following Christ. Yeah, we're still following Christ. We know what the Ten Commandments are, and they're good. But, but I got to tell you, five years ago, ain't doing jack for me when I'm sitting there with folk who have been sexually abused. I better have something today. I better have something going on here today to give them. I better have the Word of God cycled through my experience today to give them. And by the way, I just want to say this, and then I'm going to move on to the rest of this thing. You know what was interesting? These kids, these students would sign up, and then they would come, and they would sit there. And I would say 20 of the 40 said this, I'm not sure why I'm sitting here. And I, I, I began to think about that, and this is what I've come up with. I can't be sure, but this is what I think, Pastor Pam. I really think this, Pastor Joe, is that... See, we think people are looking for something theologically profound, tough answers to questions that we've long since forgotten folk are asking. And we feel so intimidated, I think, at times. These kids, look, I, I did so many wrong things in my presentations I was way too long in my presentation. You're really surprised at that, I'm sure. Um, there were some other ways that I just didn't do. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't perfect. Why did they come to sit down with me? Because I think it's because they felt this. I don't know if I could even understand all this guy's talking about, but something about the love of God is here, 
And what I'm really looking for, although I can't articulate it, is to experience the love of God. I am compelled by the love of God. So if we have this fresh story of the love of the Father pouring through us, I'm telling you, you're not going to have to be aggressive with folk. Folk will come to you, and they won't even know why they're coming. They won't even know why they're coming until you stand there with them, and you just put your hand on your shoulder and just say, well, tell me what's going on. And out it will come. And then the love of Christ in you presently, not five years ago, a memory today will reach out. And remember when Jesus said, where two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. He'll be right there, right there. And what's he doing? Doing what he came to do. Heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. What if we knew that this story in Acts 13 is our story? All of a sudden, it's not, we're going to go out witnessing as if it's some kind of a thing we do, we are simply going to take the love of God that's overwhelming us today and we're going to go live. We're going to go live. And God will bring the folks to us and he'll cycle his word through us and people will come to Christ. And then, of course, you've got the proconsul Sergius Paulus who's this big governor of a Roman province He's like our governor in our state. He's the most powerful man in this Roman province under Rome's leadership. He was the head guy in the area. And I love it that Luke names him. One of the reasons he names him is to remind everybody, you're reading a historical document. This is for real. This isn't mythology. I think the other reason he names him is that it personalizes him. Hold on one second. Rita, would you help her? you help it real quick? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Just wait one more second so that we can make sure this little pumpkin is comfortable. And by the way, I, I always feel bad when I, when I, for some reason, I almost feel like I don't have the skill level at times when, when a baby is talking and just doing what babies do and they're really loving their mamas and their mamas are loving them or their daddies or their mamas and I always feel bad. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like if as long as we honor one another, as long, and I have a good relationship with this young woman and her son, known her for actually since she's been in eighth grade. So it's like we know each other. It's like daddy-daughter. So I, I didn't, feel badly then. I'm wondering what kind of message it sends here. And I, I just want you to know there's no, um, you good? You good? Okay then. All right. All right. I know it's, 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 it's a weakness of mine. I always feel so, what message, you're talking about the love of God. What message does that send? I 
just want to make sure you know, I think it's a loving message if we put it in context, because I love her, and I love that son. I also love you, and I know that we have one moment for this word, and so that's, that's why. So thank you, and uh, I'll tell her later, thank you very much. But I, I know I sometimes sound like a broken record when I'm in these texts, but it's always um, about people. It's never about, listen, yes, sometimes it's about ideology, unrighteous ideology. But why is it about unrighteous ideology? Because the unrighteousness leaks onto people. Do, do you understand what I'm saying when I'm saying, what's it about? It's always about people. In fact, I happen to believe, my theology is that everyone is a son and daughter or daughter of God already. Christ died for how many sins? All of them. For how many people? All of them. And I know there's a piece of Reformed theology that says that God, Christ only died for the elect, that his sacrifice had to be efficacious, and so he only could have died for those that, that actually trusted him. And honestly, I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's not in here. And I, I, John Calvin's a very smart man, much smarter than me, but I wish I could have a conversation with him and say, how are you not stretching the Greek text? How are you not theologically trying to make something fit that needs to be held in tension? I believe Christ died for all. So when I see, it's just that some folk don't know it yet. What, remember, you know, you've read the stories about when someone finds out, I just found out about my birth father. I didn't think I'd ever see my birth father on this side of glory. And I just found out, but you, you see the joy? You know, there are folk out there that don't know that they have a God who is their Abba. They don't know that they're forgiven by Christ. And so it's always about people. It's, it's about the Sergius policies of the world. And, 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 and the kingdom of God, everybody has a name. Um, when I walked into that campus this week, this is what the enemy does to me. Every time I get to a new group, I sit there and think, they're doing pretty well. They don't really need to hear what I have to say. They don't need the love. Every time, every time I go to a new group, I think, this group's different. And I feel flush. My heart starts beating really fast. And I think, what am I going to do for the next five days? They don't need to hear what I have to say. And guess what? It turns out to be every time, lie from hell. There's no difference. Whether I speak to a group that are upper middle class, that have all kinds of resources, whether I speak to an all-male group, female group, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, every time the enemy has been trying to take out the sons and daughters of God who have been already bought with the precious blood of Christ. And... Um, God has in your world, whatever your um, Cyprus is, God has you there to have eyes to see the Sergius policies that are there for you to share through your journey presently with the love of God what it is that God wants to do with and for them. Finally, just look at this battle. I just want to unpack this for two seconds. You got this guy named Elymas, the sorcerer, who's a magician. He, he's he's a, a master of the dark arts, quite frankly. 
So God has his people, Paul, Barnabas, Mark. The enemy has his people. I think God loved Elymas too. He just wasn't in a position to hear the good news at that point, but the proconsul was. I don't know what happened to Elymas. God pursued Elymas, I'll promise you. But at that point, though Elymas wasn't Satan, he was being used by Satan to fight against those men who had come uh, to see the good news, rescue people from, from darkness. Um, this is a picture. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark being there, it's like, here they are. Here's Sergius Paulus. And on the other side of Sergius Paulus is son of Joshua, Elymas the sorcerer. And all of a sudden, um, the proconsul steps out of the way and, and Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Elymas the sorcerer are standing there face to face, ready to do battle. The text says, he withstood them. He said, he didn't, it's not in the text, but this is, the, this is behind the scenes. In the name of Satan, who hates people, I'm claiming this proconsul for the powers of darkness. At work, there's an enemy who's trying to claim you are deskmate, you're, you're made on the line in your family, your cousin, in the neighborhood, that neighbor two doors down. There's an enemy. Th this is not mythology. This is a picture. This is a snapshot of everyday life. There is a, people ask me sometimes, why do you seem to live so intensely? Because this is real. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to a Tiger game and enjoy the heck out of it. But I will tell you this, while I'm at the Tiger game, enjoying the heck out of it, and maybe our social workers will have to do an analysis on me and just say, you're not very spiritual, you're just crazy. Okay, I'm, I'm willing to talk. But I'm just saying, when I'm at the Tiger game, I'm watching the game, it's all good. People come up to bat, I wonder if they know my Jesus. When I see, um, when I see um, J.D. Martinez do that thing that he does, I'm going, there's, there's a man who knows the Lord. And, and, and then I look at somebody sitting two rows down, and I think, I don't know. I'm not judging, but I wonder if they know. I wonder if they know. And then I'm back trying to watch the game. Because joy, you do have to have some joy. You have to have some downtime. I'm just saying, this is a snapshot. Do you see your life like this, that you and I are Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark? Because if we don't, look, I'm just saying, what in the heck are we doing? What in the heck are we doing? And by the way, I, I, I can't stay here long, but do you, do you know who the Elemuses were for the most part in these kids' lives? And they, many of them from Christian homes. The Bar-Jesus, the son of Joshua, in most of the tools of the enemy in most of their lives, mom and dad. Many of them church-going folk who abused behind the scenes, verbally, sometimes sexually, abandoned, weren't present emotionally, hit, 
I don't have time to tell you the stories. It made me want to do a whole new thing of getting together with moms and dads and saying, let's, let's specifically start to clean up our wounds from the past so that we don't pass on the enemy's stuff to the next generation. I don't know who the elements, and I'm, I'm not suggesting you to work tomorrow and go like this. Wonder who Satan's tool is up in here today. <laughs> don't do that. Be aware that Satan has his folk trying to steal those folk that God has sent uh, us to rescue. And so, last thing. Um, Paul stands up and he confronts this evil boldly. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to kind of, now again, here's what the enemy will do. He'll say, Kevin told you to confront the evil boldly, which the enemy will translate to us, be obnoxious and arrogant and preachy. How many of you, raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. He'll, he'll translate that and see, I told you I should be obnoxious, arrogant, and preaching. No, 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 no. And I'm telling you, don't use this language. This is Paul. This is first century. What we get from this text is not memorize this and repeat it at work. Do you understand? <laughs> I don't want anybody calling me on the phone saying, well, one of your parishioners came in and he called me a son of unrighteousness. And I'm just, no. But. What would it be like if we began to believe that this is why we're on the planet? One day, we'll lay our heads down. I'm, I'm, we have to have rest. One in seven. We have to have downtime. I'm going to go home today and watch the basketball game. I promise you that we have to. But I'm saying, not without an awareness of what the bigger picture is all the time. Sometimes we go to the mass unit, but then we're back out into the battle. So what would it be like if we got so much confidence, had so much confidence that the Holy Spirit is going to use us, like that we are the Acts Church, we are Acts 29, that when we saw unrighteousness, when we saw, listen, when I was there with these kids this week, there were moments when I just, I had to sit there and in all humility, look, I, I would say, look at me, daughter of God. What your mother said to you when you were seven, this one young man, who the first night he came up to me, he's 18, big strapping young man, threw his arms around me and he said, it's amazing you would talk about wounds tonight because two weeks ago my father told me he wishes I had never been born and that he wasn't my dad. I took that young man aside and in the spirit of Paul, I knew that Elemas the sorcerer had talked to him. And I said, look at me, son. What your father spoke to you is a lie from hell. You are a son of the living God, and he loves you with all of his heart. I threw my arm around him. You might say, well, what's that going to do? One young man that I spoke those words to, really gifted young man, powerful young man, brand new Christian, he came back to me about uh, a day later and said, no one had ever looked me in the eye like that and said, I love you. He said, something broke free in me yesterday. You think, you think, you think you have to look... The, what, what, is, what does Peter say? Love one another fervently because that love will heal a multitude of sins. So if that love is here, if it's a present story, all you have to do is be present. But you have to be bold. You have to step in and stop letting the enemy say to you, who do you think you are? 
You ain't no pastor. You haven't been to, you know, I wish we didn't even have those titles sometimes. Because if, if the Father has rescued you and he's got you, and you're with him now, and he's flowing through you with his great love, then you've got everything you need to stand up to the elements of the world and boldly speak and enact the love that will send Satan running for cover. Very last night, this big, strong kid came in. And he was joking. He's a youth pastor, gifted, just joking and carrying on. I'm going to close with this. I had this other story, but I'll read it next time I preach. Um, They're such good stories, you just want to tell them all. But I understand that you can't. So this young man came in, and uh, he sat down. And I could tell, Lord, I don't know what, this guy is so defended. You know, sometimes you can tell somebody's defended with their humor. They can have a good sense of humor, and then sometimes it's a defense. So he's just whatever. And finally, he said, well, here's the bottom line. I've never experienced, I know all the Bible verses. I teach them. I'm a youth pastor. Never have experienced the love of God, and I'm starting to die inside. I said, have you told God? First I said, Father, what? And then I said, have you told God that? He said, well, this is the way I'd like to tell him. And honestly, and you've got to be ready for this. You, have to, you cannot be so religious that you're not ready for what's real. He said, what I want to say to him is, and he let out a string of expletives. I want to tell him and this and F and whatever. So I just sat there. I said, okay. He said, he turned to me and said, This is as real as I'm telling it to you. He turned to me and he said, what if I said to you right now, if you were my dad, and I said, because you're telling me to tell this to God and my father, and I said to you, and he just said it to me, F this and whatever and whatever. I just sat there and I said, do you want to know? And he said, yeah, I want to know. Again, he's about 6'5". I mean, this is a big old guy who I think I couldn't have handled, to be honest. So (laughs) I'm sitting there going, don't let him hit me, Lord. Don't let him hit me. And I said, well, because I have had that same passion and raw language toward God, my father, and he, seeing my heart and the pain in my heart, he has always taken me and pulled me close and said, I love you, son. Thanks for trusting me enough to put all that pain on my chest. So I said, my, 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 I called him his name. I said, if you would share that with me. I would, uh, I would do the same for you. I would, I would simply love you. No lie. I thought, well, that's lame. It comes out of some kind of a book or something. You know what he did? This big six-foot-cut-five kid? I'm not kidding. He looked at me and he went, <laughs> he started to sob. It's like the Holy Spirit just broke him. And I came close and I put my arm around him and I started to kiss the back of his head and I just held him. And then he put his head up and he goes, I don't understand. I don't understand. It shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't love me in that moment. I said, I know, son. This love thing is the most, who can explain it? But it's from our God who said, 
He loves us just like that through Christ. And I said, I think we're done now. (laughs) I want you to go out and on your way home tonight, I want you to tell the Father exactly what you told me and just see what, I don't have to predict God. I just have to encourage him to get with God. God will be who he is to that son. And Sergius, the proconsul, believed because of what he had seen. And I think most of the time we can interpret that as, well, he saw a blooming miracle. I mean, the guy went blind for heaven's sakes. Okay. I'm wondering if it could mean this. He believed because of what he saw. He was amazed that three men that he didn't know would go to battle for him, that would love him enough to stand in front of darkness for him. I wonder if part of it wasn't that he was so moved by seeing that love that he said, whatever else I don't understand from this day forward, my faith is in their loving Christ. I know I've gone over like a million other times that I've gone over. You won't have to see me go over too many more times, will you? Um, I know that was a bad thing to say. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Um, I got to get over my time shame. I really do. I have to get over it. I might never, but I I need to. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, I want our service to come up. If you can stay for communion... Let's close this off by the sacrament that displays and embodies the love we've been talking about this morning that the world needs. Let's close our morning by doing that. By the way, after um, I got to baptize six young people in this lake where I stood knee deep in mud and um, baptized two young women and then four, I said, anybody else? Four young men, big men just ran down down into that river, man. And that one young man, one of those young men who got baptized, and the young woman who had been trafficked, both came up to me after the communion service and said, I just took the Lord's Supper. I just, I just, I just, I just, I just took the Lord's Supper for the very first time in my life.